you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. I'm going to try and not have as long a preface this time, because last time we only got through two chapters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we talked about dwarfs for, like, half an hour. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I do want to have a short preface, because this chapter begins with Josephus Tells Us. Ooh. This made me realize some things, and I think it puts a lot of this in a very weird light. Mm-hmm. So for the uninitiated, Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian from the first century. Depending on what direction your education took, he is either best known for the Jewish war, because he was a military leader during said war, so his history of the war is a valuable first-hand account of a mid-first century revolt in Judea against Roman occupation. Or he is best known for his later work, The Antiquities of the Jews, if you had an education with a more religious bent, because The Antiquities of the Jews is a kind of a, a background into the history and and stories of the region, of Israel, Palestine, that whole like area. Without it being a religious story, or rather, without it being a religious text, like the Bible or the Quran is a religious text. It's not a mytho history, so to speak. It's more of a history as close as we can get from someone who is within that culture and history themselves. Right. He's barely aware of, like, Christianity's existence, if at all. But he does talk about, like, events in first century Judea, that is, events happening at the same time as the events of the New Testament. And so he talks about people like Pontius Pilate and King Herod mm -hmm. in ways that are divorced from uh, any kind of Christian leaning. Mm -hmm. It's just like, this is a, a this is an account of someone who lived through that period about that period. Yep. Useful. So if, if you've done... A a lot of biblical scholarship, you probably know him for that. Yes, definitely. But the point is, he definitely lived and died in the first century AD. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was my next question, because, uh, hmm, that brings a lot of questions about when this story is being told. Perlis Vals is positioning itself, much like a lot of medieval texts did. They're saying like, oh, I'm not making this up. I got this from a history book or an older book of stories I found. Like Mallory is always saying like, oh, I got this from this old French book. Mm -hmm. Perlis Vaus is specifically claiming that it's from an account by Flavius Josephus. So... Which means that, canonically, this whole story is happening in the first century. I... But it's King Arthur. Like, also, was, right? was Flavius Josephus supposed to be in England at this time? How did he? How did he get there? Why are they, Why is a Jewish scholar bringing in all this Christian religion? There, there right. are so it makes many questions. No sense. Yeah, Josephus was not hanging around the British Isles or northern France. He didn't just stay in Judea. Like he went to Rome and stuff. Like he was from Jerusalem, but he did travel. But like, yeah, but the, but the reaches of England at that time were pretty far out to try and get to. Yeah, yeah, they weren't even part of the Roman Empire yet. Mm -mm. So, like, there's no way he would have gone there. It's like, it's almost like saying, like, yeah, I'm going to go to Guam by boat 
to talk about stories and see what they're up to. Yeah, it, it was the, the far reaches of the world. Incidentally, the first century is hundreds of years before even any, like, attempt to find the historical Arthur yeah. is 6th century. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. 500 years after Josephus. Because the historical Arthur, as, as if any such character existed, <laughs> is generally thought to have been someone living in the British Isles as the Romans were leaving. Right. 500 years after Josephus. Right. And and this is not like, oh, we're taking some folk tales and we're setting it in, in England. Like, this is very much like Josephus tells the story about Perlisvaus himself. Right. Oh my gosh. Which means it does make a little more sense that, like, Percival and his family are uh, so closely related to Joseph of Arimathea. Like, that time frame <laughs> works now, but nothing else does. Yeah, he's just fixed one plot hole by creating a massive black hole in the middle of his account. Yeah, I would be shocked to find that anyone in the British Isles or even in France was even familiar with Christianity in the first century. Oh, yeah. Much less having of like a full-on Catholic church and woods full of hermits. Yeah, no, that that doesn't, uh, nope. Yeah. So, like, I, I for a while, when I was like writing notes for most of this, I was just thinking like, man, it's weird that he's decided Josephus is his source. And then all of a sudden, I was like, wait a minute. You get this. That means he's claiming that this happened at a really, really early point. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. See, this is why I want a time machine. Like, can we just go back and talk to this guy and be like, hey, what was like, why? Just why? Just why? Like, I'm sure it is because, like, Percival is supposed to be closely related to Joseph of Arimathea. And so he was like, well, clearly this is set in the first century. And I know of Josephus because everyone knows Josephus. Like, I'm sure that was the thought process. You don't need to go that far back, though, to justify it. You can just say that there's a nice lineage. True. But the claim is that Joseph of Arimathea is like his great uncle or something. Fair enough. We'll go with that, then. But, like, it's this kind of thing that you do occasionally see in medieval writing, where they write something that's set in a previous time period, but they don't actually change any of the details of, like, people's lives to make it fit that time period. Yeah. Yeah. We You see this a lot. Or uh, even sometimes, like, you may remember the story of, not Beast Claver, but the, the werewolf version, Tiedel, where they mm -hmm. just took all of these Icelandic customs and suddenly they're in Syria. There's a polar bear in Syria now. Why? We don't know. Do they have any Syrian customs? Do we learn anything about the time there? Nope. It's just Iceland, but in Syria, because that's cool. We can also think of uh, a couple of the standards, if you've taken in a medieval history course, you've probably read uh, the Canterbury Tales, mm -hmm. in which uh, the Knight's Tale is supposedly set in like the classical era, but everyone's very medieval. Mm -hmm. And the same with Sir Orfeo, which is just a retelling of Orpheus, yep. but it's very clearly not set in ancient Greece. I feel like even Shakespeare does this to a point. Like, King Lear yeah. is supposed to be set in, like, Celtic Scotland in the Highlands or whatever, and it's supposed to be, like, there's pagan gods and so on and so forth, but it's like, okay, no one's speaking that way whatsoever, even within the conventions of Shakespeare. Yeah, and for most of these, we can just say, like, okay, artistic license, you know, 
historical fiction then wasn't what it is now. Like, it doesn't matter if you want to say, like, okay, Orpheus functions by, like, medieval courtly rules. Right. Whatever. But in this case, it does actually make it make no sense. Yeah, especially because in, in a lot of these cases, it's very much like, oh, well, it's set in this time, but we're talking about, like, a romance, a fiction, a history. But this guy's trying to establish credibility, and it's not working. Mm-hmm. So that was the preface I wanted to establish is like, this is set in the first century and that makes no sense. Yeah. All right. Well, and what book are we on for my reference and for the listeners or what branch? Uh, We are starting branch six. Branch six. So uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph of this directly from the Bryant translation. Josephus tells us that another branch of the grail now begins and says that Sir Gawain took his leave of the maidens and rode on until he passed out of the forest and saw before him a most rich and pleasant land bounded by a huge wall which stretched a great way. He rode on and found that there was but one gate and when he passed through he saw the fairest and most abundant land that ever a man beheld with the most beautiful orchards. The land was no more than three leagues wide but in the middle stood a great tower upon a rock and at the top of the tower a crane had built its nest and cried out whenever a stranger entered the land. Oh, that's nice. Sir Gawain rode forward, but the crane let out such a loud cry that the king of the watch, the lord of that land, heard him. And two knights came galloping after Sir Gawain, shouting, and now I'm switching to summarizing. They're basically just saying, you're not supposed to come through here unless you see the king. And Gawain's just like, I guess if that's the rule. And so they take him to the king. Okay. And then we have our first dialogue. So... Where are you headed? To a land I have never seen before. Right. You're getting the sword from Gergeran. You don't need to be so mysterious about it. That's, like, the main reason knights pass through here. Oh. Well, yeah, that, that's that's where I'm headed. First, you gotta stay here a whole year. And quoting directly for the next exchange. Not so, sire! I beg you! It must be so. I, I just enjoy those little bits. <laughs> it's, it's clear that they're just like, it's It's just gotta be. It's you gotta be. do it. It's it's the convention of the genre, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, just like the, the fight earlier was like, you gotta fight. Why? Gotta. Gotta do it, man. Anyway, and of course, Galvin responds, but like, why? Because I know that if you get the sword, you won't come back. What if I promise to come back? Oh, well, then that's fine. Apparently... The issue is now settled, so Gawain stays the night, and the next day, he heads into the lands of King Gurgaran. Why? Why was this aside even included, aside from, like, <laughs> here's a cool tower with a crane? <laughs> That's it. All right. Well, he's, he has promised to come back, so, like, maybe that'll be relevant later. Okay, I hope so. I'm going I'm to hold our author to that. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to quote again, because now we get a description of the lands of King Gurgaran. He passed into the most ghastly forest in the world. But just on the hour of midday, he came across a fountain set with marble. Shaded by the forest it was, as if by a bower. And rich pillars of marble stood all around, inlaid with bands of gold and precious stones. And from the central pillar hung a vessel of gold on a silver chain. And in the middle of the fountain stood a statue so finely sculpted that it seemed alive. The moment that Sir Gawain appeared before the fountain, the statue plunged into the water and vanished. So it was a statue that was so realistic it looked alive and then it moved. Yes. Begging the question, is it a statue at all? (laughs) Now that you mention it, (laughs) maybe it was just a person. (laughs) I mean, I'm just putting it out there. And then there, there's a moment where Sir Gawain goes to check it out and he like reaches for like the shiny and someone hollers at him not to touch it. Of course. 
And then we get another direct quote because this whole thing is weird. Sir Gawain drew back and saw a priest come up to the spring. A young man he was, dressed in white robes with his arm in a sling, and he was holding a square golden vessel. He walked up to the vessel which hung from the marble pillar and looked inside. Then he rinsed the vessel he was holding and poured what he found in the other into his own. Just then, three maidens of the most fabulous beauty appeared, all draped in white robes with white drapes to cover their heads. One of them carried bread in a vessel of gold, another brought wine in a vessel of ivory, and the third bore meat in a vessel of silver. They came up to the golden vessel which hung from the pillar, and in it they placed their offerings. And after sitting a while at the foot of the pillar, they began to walk back. But as they went, it seemed to Sir Gawain that there was but one of them. And he wondered much at this miracle. Do you think this might be allegorical, Zoe? Um, ooh. <laughs> I'd wager so. It's either that or it's like some, it's either like a Trinitarian Christ reference or it's the Fae. And I would like to say both because that's sort of how England did things in the early, early times. Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit. Yeah. It's this almost like incoherent blend of like Christian symbolism. Yeah. Into something that does sound very much like a Fae encounter. Yeah, like the, the just the three maidens and then also it's like they, it's an offering... And it's sort of like a weird altar, and we did just see a suspicious fairy slash statue slash person just disappear into it. So there's a lot of fae going on, but then also you've got the offerings, and they're all dressed in white, and it's you get this weird symbolism of three becoming one, and so it's like, hmm... Please, please pick your denomination. <laughs> and, and pick fairies, because that's more fun to read about. That's true. The fae is devious. No, no offense to all you religious types out there, including Zoe, but the fairies <laughs> are much more fun to read about than Jesus. I think we've we've become so desensitized to Christianity in our culture that we forget that like one of the best ways it was contextualized for me was like Jesus was a young 20 something 30 something who was causing trouble everywhere he went and we forget that he was quite the revolutionary cuz you know everything's become you know say your paternosters and so on and so forth but he did he did flip some tables and he did handcraft a whip so I feel like that's kind of intentionally downplayed though because if we talked too much about like oh yeah Jesus was a revolutionary, like he drove the money changers out of the temple, he made those in power very upset. Now that Christianity is more or less the religion of the establishment, those are inconvenient things. They are, which I suggest we push back on, but I'll leave that one there. Yeah, let's 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 put that there before we get too <laughs> political. Because we now have a conversation between Sir Gawain and the priest. Ooh, huzzah. So the priest is walking off with his water. And Gowan wants to know, where are you taking that? Oh, and this is a direct quote. To the hermits who live in this forest, and to the good knight who lies sick at the house of his uncle, the hermit king. Is that far? For you, yes. For me, no. I wish I could meet this knight. I know, but you can't. Goodbye. Again, recurring theme is him going like, so can I... Can I talk to the good knight? And people just going, no, no, you can't. The story would be too short. Follow the quest. Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. Because he did. He did pass by this house once already. Yeah. He found Percival when he was sick. He just wasn't allowed inside. Yeah. If this weren't written, like, what, 800 years ago, I would accuse it of operating on video game logic. Oh, 100%. I think we can still accuse it of operating under video game logic because we have good examples of other 
other quest stories that work well. Like, you know, going in the in the Green Knight. It's a weird story, but at least it makes logical sense. Yeah. And, you know, there's only one decapitated head. That is true. <laughs> you got to use that one sparingly so it doesn't lose its effectiveness. I really feel like pretty much every Arthurian piece of literature gets compared unfavorably to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's, it's just such a beautiful work. It really is. Anyway, Sir Gawain continues his journey now that he's, you know, gotten some allegory. <laughs> and arrives at a hermitage where he confirms that he is on the right road. The next day, he rides into a more populated area and can't help but notice that everyone is weeping and wailing and generally carrying on and making a huge fuss. When he sees a passing knight, he decides to find out what's going on. The knight explains the following things. A giant has just come through and trashed the place. The giant also kidnapped the king's son. Gurgurin, the king, is offering a huge reward, including the very sword Gawain is questing for to whoever can rescue his son. Again, video game logic. A side quest that ties into the main quest. I'm here for it. None of the knights of the local non-specified religion. <laughs> they, they're very clear that it's not Christianity, but they will not tell you what it is. Well, no, because then you're advocating for it by including it. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's better than some of the other uh, medieval literature I've I've read that seems to pretend that paganism just doesn't exist. And so whenever there are pagans, they're actually just Muslims. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, but like they talk about uh, Allah and Muhammad and all that oh. and like in pagan Germany. Oh, that's weird. I don't yeah. think I've run into that. Uh, remind me to do Mirman Saga soon. That's a thing there. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I would be interested to see like how and when Muslims traveled there during that period but also it's like mm, there wasn't a whole lot of travel between those two cultures at that time no there was trade but it generally went through intermediaries right usually vikings actually i'm pretty sure there is at least one muslim travelogue that goes into northern europe so we yeah. should dig that up at yeah. some point oh i'm not surprised that there is because you i mean you'd have individuals who would do that but it wouldn't be entire cultures <laughs> like entire groups yeah there were at least a few people who went the whole route and at least one of them wrote, wrote about it. So at some point we should dig that up because it's, I'm sure it's wild to see medieval Europe portrayed from a medieval Islamic perspective. I would love that. That sounds awesome. But anyway, because the knights of the local non-specified religion are not brave enough to fight the giant, Gurgaran is currently in the market for a good Christian knight. And does Gawain happen to know any? <laughs> well... <laughs> Thrilled at how convenient this all is, Gawain rushes to meet Gurgaran. He introduces himself, Gurgaran is likewise thrilled, and they confirm the whole quest reward thing. Gurgaran also shows him the sword, which apparently bleeds each day at noon, because that was the time of day that John the Baptist was beheaded with it. That's pretty dope, not gonna lie. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, we also get a description of the sword, which I'm now going to read. The king bade that the sword be brought, and he showed Gawain the scabbard first, all inlaid with precious stones. And the straps were made of silk with golden studs, and the hilt was of gold likewise. And the pommel was a holy sacred stone, which Evelus, a noble emperor of Rome, never heard of this emperor. What is that? Evelus. E-V-A-L-U-S. I'm like 90% sure that is someone just made up a Latin sounding name. Because if that's a real emperor, it is heavily distorted. Uh -oh. 
Dr. Mac here. After looking over a list of Roman emperors, my best guess is that if this is based on a real person and not just filling in a Roman-style name, this is Septimius Severus, who would unfortunately be about a hundred years too late to be in a book written by Josephus. So, really, I don't know what to say here. If anyone has a better guess, please let me know. Yeah, I... Mm. Yeah, the one thing that I did think of was Elagabalus. Is like, did they smoosh it together? But I would be very confused if the author of Perlis Vows thought Elagabalus was a noble emperor. Yeah, same. Because, like, while I'm a big fan, because again, <laughs> sounds like a ton of fun. I, I feel like if Elagabalus had been born into the modern era, they'd be great. They would have grown up into an incredibly bad trans woman and i'm here for that i want to go drinking with that person or non-binary or whatever they intended to be yeah very definitely not comfortable in his assigned gender identity elegantless right Right. they're cool regardless great sense of humor (laughs) debatable but okay i maintain that that lion prank is hilarious (laughs) anyway Anyway. that aside so evelis Yeah, Evelus, a noble emperor of Rome, had mounted this holy sacred stone. Oh, and do remember that this is the first century, so there have been like two or three emperors of Rome. Or as many as 13, depending on how you count and where in the first century. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember between Julius Caesar and all the rest, we had Evelus. Alright, anyway, uh, then the king drew the sword from its sheath, and out it came bleeding, for it was then noon, conveniently, and he bade that it be held before Gowan until that hour had passed. You must keep looking at the sword until it stops bleeding. Keep looking. Keep looking. Thereupon, the sword became as bright and green as emerald. Sir Gawain gazed at it in wonder, coveting it more than ever. That is a sin, Gawain. (laughs) You're right. And he saw that it was as big as any other sword, but that when it was sheathed, neither the scabbard nor the sword looked longer than two spans. Okay, so this is immediately a magic item. Yes. Because it's, you know, a great sword, except when you sheath it, it's just a regular sword. Yes, if you put it in your campaign, though, your players will make jokes about it being a grower, not a shower. So brace yourselves for it. Fair enough. We expect this out of our players. You always have to think about what kind of dick jokes your players might make. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anyway, they once more confirm the deal with a quick exchange, which I believe is the next thing in our script. This sword I will give you, and I will do something else which will give you great joy. That is a normal way to offer a reward, and I have no follow-up questions. Good. Giants that away. Why, Gawain? For a story which so much hinges on Percival didn't ask the question. Yeah, no one else There's a either. lot of stuff where, like, there are a lot of questions I would have if a reward were, were presented to me in that way. Like, I know Gawain has a cleaner and purer mind than me, but I would be going like, Gergerin, I'm not sure I'm attracted to you like that. You know, or or at least, like, I didn't know you had a daughter. Yeah. You know, like, mm, bro. <laughs> Could we... Also, we just met. Like, do you know what gives me joy? Maybe you have a different idea of what's fun. Like, maybe we should hammer this out first. At least communicate a little. Maybe your idea of entertainment is not mine. Well, let's find out. So, Galvin heads off. We get another description. I'm switching to direct quotes every time there's a long description because I think they're pretty good. Oh, definitely. The men of the castle prayed for him in the manner of their religion. Whatever that is. 
that he might return in joy and safety, for he was riding into grave danger. On he rode until he came to a great high mountain, and bounded by its peaks was a land that the giant had completely laid waste, a land some three leagues across. And there within was the giant, so huge and cruel and terrible, that he feared no one in the world, nor had any knight sought him out for a long time, for none dared linger there. And the entrance to his mountain home was so narrow that a horse could not pass through. So since the horse can't fit, Gawain squeezes through the pass on foot and finds the giant outside his stronghold, sitting under a tree, playing chess with the king's son. <laughs> oh, I feel like this is immediately like one of those love stories where the king misinterprets what's going on and like locks his mm -hmm. son up and it's like, you don't understand. And the giant lays waste to try and rescue the son. And then, you know, they finally have their perfect getaway and they're playing chess. And now this, you know, shows up like hey i'm bringing you back to your dad i am absolutely now imagining like the swamp castle from holy grail the son who just wants to sing <laughs> absolutely 100 percent canon uh, anyway nothing about this strikes gowan as in any way odd or unexpected so he just draws his sword and charges what a murder hobo all right right it's just what knights are in so much of chivalric romance and Arthurian literature, and this book in particular, knights are just, they're all kind of psycho. Problematic patriarchy. The giant grabs an axe because self-defense. Sir Gawain chops off his axe arm, and the giant immediately, presumably out of spite, uses his remaining arm to crush the throat of the king's son. Oh my gosh! He then drops the body grabs Sir Gawain and starts carrying him back to the stronghold. However, on the way there, he conveniently trips and falls, and Sir Gawain takes the opportunity to stab him to death. Probably blood loss. You know, I feel like that was much less dramatic than it could be, but I'll give it a pass after Lady Girl Boss. God, that was, that was so weird. That was so cool and so weird. <laughs> Um, anyway, after pretty much screwing up every part of this quest other than kill giant, Gawain collects the king's son's body and the giant's head and goes back to the castle where he has this chat. So, um, here's your son. Sorry. You know what? Mistakes happen. You'll still get your reward. There is then a pretty interesting funeral as follows. Then he, Gurgaren... And all the men of the castle began to lament his son most deeply, and he bade that a great fire be kindled in the middle of the city. And he had his son placed in a brass vessel full of water to be cooked and boiled over the fire. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, he's boiling his son. His dead son. But, yeah. What the hell? Well, like, that's how you, uh, kill off all the germs. Uh, Gotta boil them. Oh, no. Whatever this religion is, I don't like it. <laughs> while the giant's head was hung up above the gate. And when his son's flesh was cooked, he had it cut up into the smallest pieces possible and summoned all the people of his land. No. And gave each one a piece until all the flesh was gone. No. <laughs> then he called for the sword to be brought and presented it to Sir Gawain, who thanked him for it deeply. Presumably he had no comment on the rest of that. I think he's biding his time so that he can run. I would hope that's his plan. Otherwise, he's just a murder hobo and a himbo at the same time. I mean, to be fair, he was already dead. Okay, but like, why the cannibalism then? Waste not, want not? Ah. Uh, mm. I mean, that's how you get prion diseases if you're not careful, because it didn't say they removed his brain first, but... Mm. Anyway... <laughs> At this point, Gurgaron has a surprise, the thing that will bring Gowan great joy. He summons, quote, all the men of his land to the castle for the following announcement. 
I'm converting. I want to be baptized. Yes. Bring me a hermit. Yo, Gergeron is baptized. My Christian name will be Archier, or in this accent, Archier. Also, everyone else also has to convert, or else Gawain will chop your head off. The narration then informs us that this is how the Albanians were converted, which is weird, since up until now, we've pretty much been in non-specific fantasy land. Yeah. Um, but something just occurred to me. I think Albanian, in addition to like being a real place, was also a mythical place in the medieval ages. Wait, 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 wait. Which place? Albania. A mythical place? <laughs> but it's it's... Are you sure you're not thinking of, like, Albion, which is, like, the Latin version of, of England? I might be. I don't know. I thought that there was a, like, medieval legend about a country of albinos, and it was called Albania, but I may have dreamed that or something. That's the coolest, like, <laughs> Yeah, so Albania's fake. Doesn't actually exist. Just like Finland, for those of you who get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> Mac here. I was thinking of the following passage from Pliny the Elder in the Natural History. He's actually citing another author named Isigonus of Nicaea, whose works are lost, and he says the following. The same author, Isigonus, relates that there is in Albania a certain race of men whose eyes are of a sea-green color and who have white hair from their earliest childhood and that these people see better in the night than in the day. So in the context of the text, Albania is still a real place. I just misremembered. But it is also definitely a real place, and apparently it converted to Christianity when Sir Gawain killed a giant and the king ate his son. Already. If we have any Albanian listeners, please tell us if that is consistent with what you were taught in school. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to know that one. Uh, it then skips ahead to Gawain back on the road Quote, with a heart full of joy, presumably because he is so pleased with how quickly Gergeran slash Archier picked up on how to be a medieval Christian. You know, with all the threats of conversion or death. <laughs> we are not told how many heads he chopped, but I'm going to guess it was more than zero. Yeah, most likely. I... <sighs> Especially with this author. Oh, boy. Gowan is not shown to object to the idea of chopping off people's heads for not converting. And then he just skips ahead. And we're like... So did, did, he did he chop off people's... Did, did he? Probably. Probably. I wouldn't put it past him. He's killed a lot of people so far. Right? Like a lot. Anyway, after all that top-notch heroing... Woohoo! Gawain heads back to that kingdom with the crane as he promised. Yes. And has the following conversation. Hey, king. I told you I'd come back. Check out this sword. Yoink. Yoink. Hey! Um, What? I am descended from the man who beheaded John the Baptist. This sword belongs to my family. And now an undifferentiated chorus of knights says something along the lines of, Dick move, your majesty! Fine. You can have it back on one condition. The next time any maiden asks you for any favor, you have to do it. Sure, that seems harmless. At which point we get a very arrested development moment where the narrator informs us. It wasn't. I was wondering whether you put that in or whether that was actually in the text. I did not. That is in the text. God Let me see bless. if I can find the line. Uh, Sir Gawain agreed to this quite willingly, but by doing so, he later suffered much shame and distress and was reproached by many a knight. Go figure. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, and in case anyone who for whom who doesn't have the same set of cultural references as we do, I'm going to have to drop this in earlier because I didn't realize it while I was writing these scripts. Yoink is the sound effect for stealing something from someone. Yes. <laughs> the king takes the sword. He just grabs it right out of his hands as he's being shown it. Gowan stays the knight, then heads on to his next promised rendezvous, that townsman who exchanged horses with him. We also promised to show the sword, you may recall. Oh, yes. And we have the following exchange. I don't recall what I did for the voice of the townsman, so we're going to just make up a new one. Hey, great to see you again. Check out this sword. Yoink. The townsman gallops away. Gowan follows. Dick move! Direct quote. Do not try and follow me into the city, for this is a free town. What? That... That doesn't mean it's base. Gowan follows the townsman into the town, then into the church, where he speaks to some priests. That guy who came in here a little bit ago, he has something of mine. Please make him give it back. The sword that beheaded John the Baptist? We're putting it with the rest of the relics. He says you gave it to him. No. Oh. Well... I guess you can have it back then. So, yeah, the townsman steals it as well, and then runs into the town, and is like, you shouldn't follow me, this is a free town, which basically means, like, it's it's not under the jurisdiction of any particular lord, but Gowan's just like, that, I'm- st- That doesn't help you that- any. It means that if <laughs> yeah. you're not under any code of honor in this town, then neither am I. It doesn't help anybody. At most, like, what it could mean is the people in this town maybe don't like aristocrats, so they're unlikely to take the side of a knight. But, like, that doesn't mean that you can just run in there and go, like, I'm in the town, I'm safe. Home base. Gowan then leaves with the sword once more. Only a little ways out of the city, another knight comes galloping up. He explains he is from the Castle of the Ball, and the knights there are basically cops that only punish crimes done to other knights. Insert political statement here. I feel there's a lot to be said about privilege and modern policing. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I would also want another department to look into all of the cases about knights, like, harming other knights, because there's been a lot of that. So, like... That's true. It could go either way. And, like, if everyone in this free town is in the habit of taking stuff from knights and running, maybe that's why there's a special, like, department for this. (laughs) It could go either way. I guess we'll we'll find out. Anyway, they've heard that Gowan was the victim of a robbery recently. Oh my gosh. Uh, Gowan declines to press charges, so instead the knight takes him back to the castle of the ball for dinner. There, he finds the lord sitting back, watching his daughters play with a golden ball. Which, I guess, is why the castle is called that. I thought it was like a, a dance. Like, I thought that's what we were referring to, but okay. There is no explanation given for the name, but his daughters are playing with a golden ball, so like, eh. Okay. Anyway, they sit down to dinner, and a dwarf pops out of a side chamber, brandishing a whip. So, Zoe, what disguise is Warwick Davis wearing this time? Um, if he's holding a whip, I want to say he looks like Indiana Jones. All right. Warwick Davis is dressed like Indiana Jones. <laughs> and he shouts that the daughters are being too friendly and polite to Gowan. And he whips them, (gasps) quote, across their faces and on their heads. What the heck? The daughters and Warwick all leave the room and Gawain is very confused, which is where we get our next. No, Gawain is very confused. Um, 
What the fuck? Don't worry about it. Warwick is our daughter's tutor. He's just upset that you killed his brother, the one who worked for Marin the Jealous. Mrs. the Jealous was a relative, actually, so we're all still pretty broken up about the incident. Yeah, so am I. I don't need to say this, or at least I shouldn't need to say this, but you going through your own shit does not give you the right to hurt other people. Yeah. Just, I just wanted to make that excruciatingly clear, and the Lord of the Ball is being an enabler here. Yes, all of this is true. And also, there's definitely going to be a problematic, problematic patriarchy team here, editing that. Please remember that. Yay! Because we have someone whipping girls to take out their own frustrations. Sounds very Freudian, actually. <laughs> it really does. The text then skips right to a travel montage. Until Gowan again reaches the castle, guarding the entrance to the Fisher King's lands. He shows them the sword, and they let him in, where he gets an audience with the head priest, whom we are told is, quote, very old and advanced in years. And we have another little script. I'm sure you need rest. You seem tired. Frankly, I'm just worn down by the complete nonsensical batshittery I've had to deal with on this quest. Yes, we expect that sort of thing. This castle here is called the Castle of Inquiry, where we can answer questions about the symbolism of the text. How very meta. Yeah, I got questions. Oh, okay, so he's just been collecting his questions. He's not going to deal with any of these people's bullshit. He's just going to save all of his questions until, you know, he gets to the the journal entry. <laughs> The save point? I'm not sure, like, if it just hadn't occurred to him until now that, like, oh, I can ask questions. Until someone's like, this is the castle where you can ask questions. He's like, oh, this is where you do that. Achievement unlocked. This next bit is the reason why I said at the end of last uh, recording session that chapter six is a bit long, because I'm going to give you the Q&A session direct from Bryant's translation. Let's go. And it's a couple pages. Is this, okay, hang on. Is this a good example of how to interact if you are somehow whisked into medieval fantasy land? Or is this a really bad example of what to do? You mean not asking questions until you're explicitly told you can ask questions? No, I mean like this session in particular, like... Should you take advantage of this opportunity, or is this a bad idea? Having read it ahead of time, I'm going to say it is neutral. Oh, okay. Because nothing bad comes of it, but also, like, the answers he gets aren't helpful within the world of the text. They're helpful to the reader. So, okay, so this is, like, really bad expository writing that goes straight through. Oh, yes, you can find that over here. It's next to this other place that you already know about. You've lived here your whole life. Yeah, the, the head priest doesn't actually say, like, you can ask questions about the symbolism of the text, but I put that in because that is basically how they answer it. Like, instead of going, like, yes, this is what was going on, they, like, do biblical exegesis on, like, the events that have happened. Amazing. Again, as if... If it were a text, despite the fact that they are existing within that text. And so it's like if, there, if someone was explaining the symbolism of, like, something you did yesterday. That's bizarre. In faith, said Sir Gawain, I am greatly puzzled about three maidens who came to the court of King Arthur, bearing two heads, the head of a king and the head of a queen. And in a cart, they were carrying the heads of 150 knights, some of them sealed with gold, some with silver, and others with lead. Indeed, said the priest. But the maiden said that by the queen the king was betrayed and killed, along with the knights whose heads were in the cart. She spoke true, as Josephus tells us. 
which is extra weird because supposedly Josephus wrote the text. So Josephus says, as Josephus tells us. I mean, to be fair, I'm pretty sure John does that in the book of John. And he, he does the whole thing where, is it John or is it Peter? I think it's Peter, actually. Does Peter have a book? No, Peter doesn't have a book, so I don't know. It must have been John. Anyway, there's this, there's a, I should know this, but there's a bit where he's like, and then the disciple that Jesus loved best asked, and it's him, the one writing <laughs> it. And you're like, wow, really? Okay. And every time nice. it cracks me up, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm going to bow to your expertise here. I don't think I've read the New Testament since I took a Bible as literature class in like my freshman year of undergrad. I'm going to Google this really quick because I want to know. I do have several copies of the Gideon New Testament, but that's just because I like to collect the different cover variants. It is John. It is John. Yeah. Right. So John 13, 23 has the quote, the disciple Jesus loved referring to himself. I'm not sure whether that's cringe or if you just have to respect that kind of like, look, I'm the one writing this. So I'm going to tell you just between you and me, I was Jesus's favorite. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But every time I read it, it, it just cracks me up and i'm like all right cool way to go john <laughs> anyway she spoke true as josephus tells us for he reminds us that by eve was adam betrayed and all the people who have lived since and the ages to come will always suffer for it because adam was the first man he is called king for he was our earthly father and his wife is queen and the heads of the night sealed in gold signify the new law, i.e. Christianity. And the heads sealed in silver, the Jews. And the heads sealed in lead, the false law of the Saracens, i.e. Muslims. Saracen was like the... The, the It's basically medieval for like anyone who's... Arabic E. Yeah. Oh, and just uh, an FYI, there is, of course, like in many medieval texts and many chivalric romances and pretty much any medieval text with religious undertones or overtones or just content, <laughs> kind of like a anti-Semitic current under there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which we've addressed before. Have we? Okay. Yeah, we have. Like just the general idea that Christians didn't like Jews for a variety of reasons, including the fact that there was like a, there was a banking thing to it where it, they could charge interest and Christians yeah. could not charge interest, interest to each other. Right. It's usury. It's a sin. Right. That, again, uh, a part of doctrine that has been conveniently forgotten in the modern world yeah. is that charging interest is not allowed. Yeah. So there's that. There's also the idea that, well, Jews kill our savior, so we should hate the Jews, which is literally not what Jesus said, but okay. If you were to represent it accurately, you'd have to say, like, the Romans killed our savior. But the Catholic Church is based in Rome, so they probably don't want to say, so we should all hate the Romans, because then everyone's like, but we're Romans. Right. But see, there were there were quite a few Romans who converted, whereas the Jews, I mean, there were also Jews who converted. Yeah, I was going to say, like, all the early Christians were, were Jews, Jews who converted. Right. But the Pharisees, etc., the Jewish community were the ones who were the most upset about it and fought back the most. And it's generally considered, even in the Christian community to this day, that like Pontius Pilate was like, okay, whatever you guys want. This is why he says he washed his hands of this. And so, yeah, there's a kind of undercurrent through a lot of medieval literature where they just paint the like the, the fact that not all Jews converted as them just being kind of stubborn, yep. which is problematic in many ways. But that's like the vibe you get. But the reason I bring this up is because it's been suggested that since this was written around the time of the Albigensian Crusade, a lot of the times the Jews are a metaphor in this text for the Cathars. Oh, the heretics who, were, who the crusade had been declared against. 
exist. Now we can hate two groups at once. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a turducken of intolerance. Oh. <laughs> That's great, though. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Wonderful analogy. Anyway, these, all these heads. Of these three kinds of men, is the world composed? And no, no one else. It's just Christians, Jews, and Muslims. I was going to no say, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know. All right. Sire, said Sir Gawain, I wonder much about the castle of the Black Hermit, where all the heads were taken. The maiden told me that the good knight would set free all those within when he came, and the people imprisoned there are calling for him. You surely know, said the priest, that because of the apple that Eve gave Adam to eat, the good went to hell as well as the wicked. And to free his people from hell, God came as a man. And through his goodness and power, he set his friends free. And thus Josephus tells us, Josephus is self-citing a lot here, of the castle of the Black Hermit, which signifies hell from which the good knight will set the imprisoned free. And he tells us that the black hermit is Lucifer, who is lord of hell, just as he wished to be of paradise. Sire, said the priest, the good hermit explains the meaning of these things for us for the sake of the new law, with which most people are poorly acquainted, and he wishes to remind us of it by relating events which provide examples. So... The priest is literally saying, like, that actual, literal, real castle you passed, that was a metaphor that the author put in. <laughs> this is why I don't like metaphors and allegory. I can't stand allegory. I've never liked allegory. I'm sorry, Dr. McDowell. It's been four years. I still can't do it. Oh, This is why I can't do C.S. Lewis either. He's like... The bus is a symbol of how you get to purgatory or whatever. And I'm like, bruh, I don't like my theology wrapped up in riddles. <laughs> Isn't Don't we have enough of that? Ugh. Anyway, that's wild. I kind of want to start like explaining real events that way. Like if someone tells me <laughs> about like their day, I'm just going to go, oh, the grocery store was a metaphor. <laughs> For what? It was all an allegory. Don't worry about it. <laughs> But wait, I want to know. Like, if we're going to have an allegory, I need to know what it is. Uh, it's it's a metaphor for man's inhumanity to man. Ah, yes. Who can get the last bag of Skittles or something? Anyway. Anyway. Readers, I encourage you to also start explaining things that are real as if they were metaphors. And then just at the end, just, you know, add like, as the prophecy foretold or something. Yeah. Just for added flair. Yeah. Or speak of yourself in the third person, like, as the author Mac tells us. <laughs> <laughs> Write your own story. Be your own hero. This is your narrative. Literally, apparently. In the name of God, said Sir Gawain, I wonder much about the maiden who is completely bald and says that she will never have hair again until the good knight conquers the grail. She must indeed be bald, sire, replied the priest. <laughs> she has been bald ever since the good king fell into languor because of the knight whom he lodged who failed to ask the question. The bald maiden, Josephus says, signifies fortune, who was bald before the crucifixion of our lord and never had hair until the hour when the savior redeemed his people with his blood and his death. 
I'm not following that one at all. Was fortune bald? How does that work? Maybe it means like original sin caused Fortune to lose her hair and she started growing it again after the crucifixion. But then we're, we're literally still working in allegory because Fortune is not a person. Yes, everything is allegory. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. Like th- this entire conversation is, Gawain, you live in a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you rolled a 20 on your insight and it's just, <laughs> you could see everything. <laughs> You see the symbolism intended by the author. Oh, no. The card which the maiden brought with her signifies fortune's wheel. For just as the card is born by its wheels, so is the world controlled by the wheel of fortune. This can quite clearly be seen from the two maidens who followed behind her. For the most beautiful went on foot, and the other was on a lowly pack horse, and they were poorly attired, while the third was much better dressed. The shield with the red cross, which was left at King Arthur's court, signifies the holy shield of the cross, for which none but God ever dared pay the price. It's it's too many layers, man. Uh Uh-uh. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Sir Gawain heard these explanations, and they pleased him greatly. (laughs) That would not be my reaction to learning that I live inside a metaphor, but okay. And he thought of the shield hanging in King Arthur's Hall, which no one dared to take up or confer, as he had heard in many places. Everyone was waiting daily for the good knight who was to come for it. Great thanks, said Sir Gawain to the priest, for explaining the things that had puzzled me so. But I was most grieved for a lady whose husband killed her because of me, though neither she nor I were guilty of any wrong. How does this help that in any way? Well, good news. Sire, said the priest, her death was of great significance, for Josephus tells us how the old law was irreparably overthrown by the thrust of a lance. To overthrow the old law... God suffered himself to be stabbed in the side with a spear, and by that blow and his crucifixion, the old law was cast down. That lady signifies the old law. Have you anything else to ask me? Who's Jesus in this metaphor? I thought we already figured out that Percival was Jesus. I'm not sure. Who's getting Mm. stabbed? Wait, we're confusing our metaphors. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, so... Apparently, Marin the Jealous is Longinus, for whatever reason. Uh-huh. And Mrs. the Jealous, or Jezebel, as you named her, right. is the old law, but she's the one getting stabbed. Right. So she's also Jesus. <laughs> yes. How does this work? This is a bad metaphor. I'm not going to argue this with This priest you. is pulling it out of his ass. I think the answer to how does it work is it doesn't. Correct. Sire, said Sir Gawain, I met a knight in the forest who was riding backwards and carrying his arms upside down. He said he was the coward knight, and he had his hauberk tied around his neck. But as soon as he saw me, he carried his arms properly and rode along like any other knight. Religion, said the priest, was turned the wrong way before the death of our Lord, but once he was crucified, it was set right. So this time Gowan is Jesus. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is not helpful. (sighs) I do particularly like that now also, like, the people he met are metaphors. He's like, there was this woman who got, like, brutally murdered in front of me. It's okay, she was a metaphor. (laughs) I feel like this is Gawain, or at least, like, this is either the priest or Gawain's way of coping with his trauma. It could be. That's actually an interesting reading. I think there might be a paper in that. That's where I would go with it, especially, and then, and then we can, we can go meta with it. 
just like the priest is going meta with this story, the author is writing this as a way to process his own trauma. Which is also a metaphor. (laughs) I don't think so. But okay. Well, no, because didn't the introduction get into like how this author was probably suffering from... From PTSD, right? So who knows? Maybe this was cathartic. I don't think it actually says PTSD, but it says like, oh, he was traumatized by like the experience of the Albigensian crusade, like which which he is very enthusiastically on the bad side of like the... Yeah. The winning side, but the evil side. Fair. I.e. the crusaders, the people who killed all those people. Anybody can get PTSD from combat regardless of why they were fighting. I think those can be separate issues. This is true. I, j- I just want to make sure we're not feeling too sympathetic for him. Oh, for, for sure. When we, say, like, when we say like he has trauma from the Albigensian Crusade, he wasn't a victim of the Crusade. He was a perpetrator. He just has trauma from the experience. Yep. There is yet another thing, said Sir Gowan. Another knight came to joust with me with arms quartered in black and white, seeking satisfaction for that lady's death on her husband's behalf. And he told me that if I vanquished him, then he and his lord would be my vassals. I did vanquish him, and he paid me homage. That is only right, said the priest, for when the old law was overthrown, all those who upheld it were brought into subjection, and always will be. Which seems like a dickish thing to say. Yeah. But yeah, apparently the the party night is a allegory for the Jews. I don't like the implications of that one. Nope. Have you anything more to ask? I wonder much, said Sir Gowan, about a child who was riding a lion at a hermitage when none but he dared go near it. He was no more than seven years old, and the lion was a most ferocious beast. Okay. He was the son. I distinctly remember them saying that the lion was gentle. But only to to the kid. All right, fine. (laughs) He was the son of the lady who was murdered because of me. You have spoken well, replied the priest, in reminding me of that. I wish I hadn't picked this voice because it hurts my throat. (laughs) The child signifies the savior of the world who was born into the old law and was circumcised. And the lion he was riding signifies the world and the people in it. And the animals and birds. For only he, with his divine power, could govern them and bring justice to them. O sire, cried Sir Gawain, your words give me great joy. But I came upon a fountain in the forest, sire, the most beautiful ever seen. And there was a statue there, which vanished as soon as it saw me. Then a priest came bearing a vessel of gold, and he went up to another golden vessel which hung from the pillar, and took what was inside, and placed it in his own. Then three maidens came, and filled the vessel with whatever they were carrying, and thereupon it seemed to me that there was but one maiden. Of that, said the priest, I will tell you no more than you have heard. And you should be thankful for that much, for no one should reveal the secrets of the Savior. They should be kept secret by him to whom they are entrusted. Yeah, he just doesn't know. He just doesn't have that one. (laughs) He's like, I'm sorry, you saw a what? (laughs) (laughs) Even I can't do that one, bro. Sire, said Sir Gowan, I wish to ask you about a king I saw who took his dead son and had him boiled and cooked. Oh, good, because I want to know about this. (laughs) Then gave him to all the people of this land to eat. Sire! replied the priest. He had brought his heart to the Savior and wanted to make a sacrifice to our Lord with his son's blood and flesh. And so he gave him to be eaten by all his people, wishing them to share his belief. 
and he has so cleared his land of all wrongful religion that none now remains. Nope. Mm-mm. This That's is- an appropriate way to, like, sacrifice for God, right? You, you kill and cook and eat a child. This is not how we do exegesis. For the record, this is not how this works. Are you sure? I mean, again, it's been a long time since I've been in a church. Oh. Do they not cook children? I prefer my potlucks. Are you sure that about what kind of meat is in those potlucks? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not going to think about the chili anymore. <laughs> oh... I think that's extra funny because I, I don't know how true this is, but it's like a persistent like story I hear that the whole transubstantiation communion thing confused the pagan Romans during the early period of the church, and they thought it was literal cannibalism. That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah that did go around for a little while. They were like, um, what? <laughs> you're, do- you're doing what? <laughs> I feel like going the other way and going like, this cannibalism, this literal cannibalism <laughs> signifies. This literal cannibalism. Cannibalism is spiritual communion. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, hang on, wait. (laughs) All right. So, thankfully for my throat, that's all of it. That was, like, two whole pages. Anyway, Gawain stays in FAQ Castle for the night and then heads out through, quote, The most beautiful land in the world, with the most beautiful meadows and rivers that ever a man beheld, and forests stocked with wild beasts and hermitages. Stocked with hermitages. That's why I wanted to quote that directly. It's like, this is just the best, like, landscape ever. The forest is just full of hermitages. (laughs) There's one on every hill. At what point does it stop being a bunch of hermitages and become, like, a town? I guess if they're on, like, if they each have their own acre or league or something. Yeah. Spaced far enough out. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he comes across one of said hermitages, a hut and chapel built so small that a grown man could not fit through the door. The narrator informs us that the hermit within has not left for at least 40 years. I interpreted this as meaning that it was built around him or that he moved in when he was a small child and now he physically can't leave. Oh, no. (laughs) But the guy I was reading from at the beginning of the previous episode speculated that this hermit is actually a dwarf and it's just not mentioned. Oh, I see. And that's why his hut is too small for a grown man to enter because it's built for someone his size. That's understandable and actually quite nice. Yeah. It's a little less weird than having a hut built around him that he can't get out of. Although that is something that, like, that's basically just being an anchorite. I was going to say, that's what the anchorites did. It really could go either way. Yeah. Anyway, he waves through the window at Gowan, and we have another little exchange. Welcome, Sawyer. May I have lodging here for the night? Here, in this tiny anchorite cell that is not built to allow entry or exit? <laughs> no, Gawain, you can't crash here. The castle of the Fisher King is, like, right over there. On the way to the castle, Gowan passes a magnificent tomb, and a booming disembodied voice informs him, No touching! <laughs> so he just keeps going. And I just couldn't help but imagine, like, that moment from the Emperor's New Groove, where Cusco oh, is like, No touching! No <laughs> He then reaches a series of three bridges over three rivers. On the other side of the first one, a knight is calling for him to hurry up and cross because it will be dark soon. The problem is that the bridge is less than a foot wide. There's no way to get all the way across the river safely, at least not on horseback and in full plate armor. Fair. I mean, even in armor, I guess you could like just sit down and like scoot across, but (laughs) that would be unknightly, I guess. Mm. 
If you can't look fashionable while you do it, then there's no point. Yeah. After some hesitation and prayer, Gowan resigns himself to a wacky slapstick death and spurs on his horse. But as soon as his horse steps onto the bridge, he sees that it was an illusion of some kind. The bridge is plenty wide. It's also a drawbridge and raises itself up after Gowan crosses. This sequence is repeated at the second river, but Gowan doesn't hesitate because he's getting the hang of it. When he reaches the third bridge, the illusion doesn't even work on him. He sees a sturdy and well-made marble bridge. Across the bridge, however, the gate is pretty wild, so we're gonna get a direct quote. All right. Then he looked at the gate ahead of him, and there he saw depicted, Our Lord on the cross, with his mother on one side and St. John on the other. All in gold they were, with precious stones that blazed like fires. And on the right he saw a beautiful angel, his finger pointing to the chapel of the Holy Grail. There are a lot of male pronouns here, and I thought angels were genderless. Mm, some are genderless, and some have been presented with gender. Like, Michael, I believe, is technically always described with male pronouns. He had a precious stone in the middle of his chest, and letters written above his head, saying that the lord of the castle was as pure and clean of all sins as the jewel. And I just want to say, like, having on your castle gate, like, a sculpture of an angel, and above the angel it says, like, the lord of the castle is clean and pure of all sins, that seems hubristic to the point of blasphemy. It really does. Like, you gotta have some serious balls to do that. I mean, so is the Pope, though, but, like, the Pope is technically... I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, like, he's, he's the Pope. He has 2,000 years of being, like, officially God's... Mouthpiece. Mouthpiece, thank you. I, I was trying to think of a way to say it, and I, I was just coming up completely blank on what the appropriate words were. Just then, Gowan saw at the gateway a huge and terrible lion standing there on all fours. But as soon as it saw Sir Gowan, it lay down on the ground, and he passed by quite freely. It judges your virtue. Yeah, it's like uh, the Egyptian afterlife, but Christian. There you go. Uh, Gowan is escorted into the hall, which is lit by some unidentified and sourceless light because he lives in a video game. And brought to the Fisher King. It's the fluorescence. <laughs> yes, it's the fluorescence. <laughs> a description of the Fisher King's chamber, which also sounds very nice, is as follows. And so they led him to the chamber where the Fisher King lay, which seemed to be strewn with grass and flowers. The king was lying in a bed hung on cords, which sounds like a, a, a bed that you have to lie very still in order to be comfortable in. If it's like hanging on cords from the ceiling. Is that not just like a hammock? I guess that is... Like, not like straight down, but like, you know, if it's like at an angle. That makes more... Okay, see, I was thinking of like just a mattress with a rope at each corner attaching it to the ceiling. And I was like, if you move at all, that's going to start swaying like a carnival ride. I mean, yes. And I have seen those on Pinterest before. Oh, really? Yeah, like you use like those those like shipping slats or whatever. And all like the Pinterest moms are like, yes, I'll put it on my porch. It'll be a porch swing. <laughs> at least that makes more sense. Yeah. I was going to say, if that's your main bed, like, you either have no sex life or a very exciting <laughs> sex life. What or the other? There's no in-between there. Uh, anyway, a bed hung on cords with posts of ivory and a mattress of brocaded silk on which he lay, and his coverlet was of sable with the finest of sheets. And on his head he wore a sable hat. Uh, it should be noted for the listeners that sable, in addition to being a synonym for black used in heraldry, is also a type of fur covered with red samite and blazoned with a cross of gold. His head rested on a pillow hung with a balmy fragrance. 
No, that's what it says. I guess this pillow is supported by a odor. Hmm. I think, you know, it means like it's, you know how you can describe how scents hang about in the air where you get like fog that's uh, hanging about in the air. Yeah, okay. That's that what tracks. I would go with. And a jewel was set at each corner of the pillow, I guess, which makes it a very bad pillow. Shining with a brilliant light, which makes it an even worse pillow. You can't sleep on this pillow. <laughs> no. It has a light bulb at every this corner. This is a daybed. A lit light bulb. For ostentatious purposes. And there in the room stood a pillar of copper, and on it an angel sat. It does not specify whether this is a real angel or a statue of an angel. It doesn't do anything, so I'm going to assume statue, but like it does just say angel. Okay. Holding a golden cross, on which there was a piece of the real cross where God was crucified, as big as the cross of gold itself. And this the worthy king worshipped. And in four golden candlesticks stood four tall candles, which burned throughout the hours when light was needed. I mean, if you're as dedicated as this guy, then I sort of get the inscription. Yes. Although still, come on, dude. If you're if you're a humble and godly person, like... This seems like a lot. Yeah, telling people about your purity is the opposite of being humble and godly. You know, yeah, it's an issue. But then again, so is living in a, in a palace. So you know what? Whatever. <laughs> Gowan gives the Fisher King the sword, for which he is grateful. He introduces his niece, Iglesias' daughter, <laughs> who is looking for Percival. It's not clear, by the way, whether it's the same daughter that met Gowan earlier, like last time we were in Iglesias' castle. Right. It's just, it just says, like, Iglesias' daughter, Percival's sister, but since he didn't, didn't give her a name either time. But you don't really know. Yeah. She gives us some sense of the passage of time. The gear Gowan bought them is now up, and Percival is still absent. All right. You may remember that when Gowan passed through Iglesias' area, he got her a truce for a year and a day. Yep. And that time has now passed. And they were hoping that Percival would show up before it expired in order to save <sighs> them from the siege, but he hasn't. He is shirking his duty. He really is. Gowan is then led to the Fisher King's table, and the knights there, whom we are told are all over a hundred years old, though they only look 40, aside from their white hair. <laughs> All right. And again, since this is canonically set in the lifetime of Flavius Josephus, that means that all of these knights are literally older than Jesus. Yeah, that, that causes some problems. All right. They remind him that he's supposed to ask about the grail. Oh, good. So we're not having a... A second iteration of this problem. Yeah, no, he sits down and they're immediately like, okay, Gowan, when the when the grail comes out, you say, who is served from the grail? Like First thing. Do it. First Gowan, thing. do it. And so now, now if he does, then the ladies can all be, like her hair will grow back and yeah. she can take her arm out of the sling. And, yeah. Okay. All right. And presumably all the knights will stop fighting each other on sight because in, the, in this chivalric romance, at least, they have kind of a reason for that, which is a curse on the land because Percival didn't ask the question. Right. Uh, now, I haven't been recounting this because it's very repetitive, but literally everyone who has mentioned the Fisher King and Percival has reminded Gowan, ask the question, ask the question. <laughs> I like that. It's really not, he's not going to forget. Yeah, it's every time. All right. However, the Grail is brought in at this point and things get a bit psychedelic. Oh my gosh, here we go. Another direct quote, another long direct quote. Not as long as the FAQ castle, but long. Just then, two maidens appeared from a chapel. In her hands, one was carrying the Holy Grail, and the other held the lance with the bleeding head. Side by side, they came into the hall where the knights and Sir Gawain were eating. So sweet and holy a fragrance came forth that their feasting was forgotten. Sir Gawain gazed at the grail and thought he saw therein a chalice, which at that time was a rare sight indeed. 
And he saw the point of the lance from which the red blood flowed, and he thought he could see two angels bearing two golden candlesticks with candles burning. The maidens passed before Sir Gawain and into another chapel. Sir Gawain was deep in thought, so deep in joyful thought, that he could think only of God. Oh no. The knights stared at him, all downcast and grieving in their hearts. Oh no. But just then, the two maidens came out of the chapel and passed once more before Sir Gawain, and he thought he saw three angels where before he had seen but two, and there in the center of the grail he thought he could see the shape of a child. The foremost knight cried out to Sir Gawain, but he, looking before him, saw three drops of blood drip onto the table, and was so captivated by the sight that he did not say a word. And so the maidens passed on by, leaving the knights looking at one another in dismay. Sir Gawain could not take his eyes off the three drops of blood, but when he tried to kiss them, because that's what you do with blood, someone else's blood that drops onto the table in front of you, you try to kiss it, you know, we've all been He's there. He's tripping real hard. When he tried to kiss them, they moved away from him, and it grieved him deeply that he could not touch them with his hand, or anything within his reach. Thereupon, the two maidens passed once more before the table, and to Sir Gawain <laughs> it seemed that there were three. And looking up, it appeared to him that the grail was high up in the air. And above it he saw, he thought, a crowned king nailed to a cross, with a spear thrust in his side. Sir Gawain was filled with sorrow at the sight, and he could think of nothing save the pain that the king was suffering. Again, the foremost knight cried out to him to speak, saying that if he delayed longer, the chance would be lost forever. But Sir Gawain remained gazing upward in silence, hearing nothing that the knight had said. The maidens disappeared into the chapel with the grail and the lance. The knights cleared the tables, left the feast, and moved off into another chamber, and Sir Gawain was left there alone. Oh no. I mean, now it's understandable. Yeah, like, now we know why people don't ask. It's because apparently, like, whatever is going on here, like, maybe they're burning something weird in their thuribles, or, like, it's just a property. Spiritual yeah, experience. Yeah, like, you just go. Yeah. Like, you you get some kind of weird high from the experience, and you're not able to function. I completely understand why everybody's so excited about Mass now. Yeah, I mean, if it's always like this, yeah, great. Anyway, left alone in the room, Gawain eventually snaps out of his, like, religious paralytic ecstasy and decides to fool around with the chessboard in there. Because <laughs> there's a random chessboard. Okay, sure. Yeah, there's a chessboard, you know. Yeah. The basics. This palace is full of fancy stuff. Anyway, he finds out the chessboard is magic and can play itself. Okay. He loses to the AI twice. <laughs> Haven't we all been there, though? I can't play chess worth a damn. And he gives up partway through the third game. Then someone shows up and takes the chessboard away, and Gowan just falls asleep. I have so many questions. So he may have still been tripping. What are you doing? Give me that. <laughs> Go to bed. These edibles, man. <laughs> uh, in the morning, he is ushered out of the castle without being allowed to see any of the people from last night. Understandable. A maiden of no particular identity gives him a close but no cigar speech. <laughs> then the PA system kicks on. <laughs> With that, the maiden departed, and once again Sir Gawain heard the horn sound, and a voice cried aloud, Who does not belong here? Let him be gone. Whoever he may be, the bridges are lowered, the gate is open, and the lion is in its den. And after this, the bridges must be raised again, because the king of Castle Mortal is besieging this castle, for which he will surely die. I am so confused. Like, just the entire experience of being at the Fisher King's Palace 
is surreal. And I understand now why those three maidens of the cart are so weird. Yes. Yes. If this is like where they live, then yes, absolutely. This is, I mean, yeah, Groucha does actually say like that normally she's the one carrying the grain. Yeah. Like that's her, that's her her usual job. So yeah, you, she must be here for this like regularly. No wonder they're so weird. So weird. Shortly after Gowan leaves, a huge storm blows up. Quote, so furious a tempest was it that Sir Gowan had to lay his shield over the neck of his horse to save it from drowning in the torrential rain. Wow. So Gowan is riding along a riverbank, almost drowning in rain, when he catches sight of some people on the opposite bank and looks over and sees that it's perfectly nice weather over there. It's just raining around him. He calls to one of the people across the river to ask about it and gets this response. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Sire, you have deserved it, and it is the custom of the forest. So at least it's literal rain, but like it's still just like, why is it only raining around me? That's just how it works, <laughs> and you deserve it anyway. <laughs> You're bad, and you should feel bad. Yeah, it's like when a cartoon character is walking along a lo- under a little yeah, rain cloud. They like have it's their just own that. Little- Oh my gosh. Eventually he comes to a bridge and the storm doesn't follow him across the river. So he he gets to dry off. Oh my gosh. Uh, And he comes to a castle where there is a party happening. He tries to introduce himself as a standard, but nobody seems to notice or acknowledge him. He keeps trying for a little while, but then gives up. Reasonable. On the way out, he runs into a knight at the gate and has a quick chat, which is our next little script. Where am I? This is the castle of joy. They seem awfully rude here. Well, you deserve it. They're deliberately ignoring you because of your fuck-up at the court of the Fisher King. That was a good voice for that. I liked that choice. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Gowan, feeling pretty down, moves on. He finds himself in a very dry, poor land with, quote, scanty crops, unquote. (laughs) That's my my stripper name. (laughs) Scanty crops? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it does have the right, like, cadence, I guess. <laughs> Mostly you think of, like, a crop top, you know? <laughs> I, I guess a scantily, I guess you can be, like, yeah, scantily clad in a crop top. Okay, okay, I, I get where you're coming from. All right, well, just remember that in case you ever take up stripping. Yeah, yeah. He comes to a castle that is mostly in ruins, but clearly at least partially inhabited. There he is welcomed by a knight and two maidens who are very courteous, but dressed in ragged clothing. They are about to help him out of his armor when another knight bursts into the room with the broken end of a lance sticking out of him. He has urgent news as follows. Lancelot is nearby. Lancelot is also on the wrong end of a four-on-one fight. The people he's fighting attacked because they thought he was Gowan. Oh no. They're kin of those knights he killed at the tent a while back. Oh yeah, the bad breakup. Gowan immediately turns around and gets back on his horse, and the the poor knight, which is what he's called, says, and I quote, Sire, I would gladly do all in my power to help you, but I cannot leave my castle until it is filled once more with the people who belong here, and my land is restored to me through the valor of a good knight. Ten out of ten, Batman. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I was going for, I've been smoking for 50 years. I mean, that's also what he sounds like, so... Gowan does not respond. He's already galloping out. Lancelot's fortunes have improved. He is now only on the wrong end of a two-on-one fight because one of his opponents is dead and one too wounded to continue. But Lancelot is running out of steam. Yeah, fair. Sir Gowan charges in and stabs one of the remaining opponents right off his horse, killing him on the spot. The last, seeing that now he's on the wrong end of a two-in-one fight, flees. 
Smart move. Yes, correct choice. The wounded knight quietly dies in the background. Gawain tells Lancelot about the poor knight he's staying with, and the two decide to give him their loot from this battle. The poor knight is thrilled to bits by the arrival of three warhorses into his stables. As any D&D player can tell you, a fully trained warhorse, which may also have barding and other trappings and maybe some saddlebags with extra goodies, is a valuable commodity. Indeed. As he helps Lancelot and Gowan out of their armor, he goes on about how he and his sisters, the aforementioned maidens, also here to help with the armor, doffing full plates the whole thing, again, as any D&D player can tell you, uh, he and his sisters will finally be able to afford proper clothes. Proud of him. I know. Uh, speaking of clothes, at all the previous castles Gowan has lodged at, he has been provided with a robe or something so he can dress for dinner. Presumably whatever he wears under his armor, which I guess is just like a simple padded garment or something, is not appropriate for dinner. And it's just not practical to schlep a nice outfit through the wilderness, so they all provide him with like dinner wear. Oh, that's sweet. However, the poor knight has exactly one outfit suitable for dinner, and he's wearing it. It, it may, in fact, be the only outfit he has, period. Oh, buddy. <laughs> There's an awkward moment where presumably Gowan and Lancelot are weighing the options of wearing their armor padding to dinner, which one can only imagine is absolutely filthy, given that they've been wearing it while traveling through the wilderness and battling other knights, and who knows when they last washed it. And now they're just, yeah, covered in blood. Yeah, or just eating in the nude, but the sisters intervene. <laughs> they are, it seems, wearing those gowns you see a lot of in medieval paintings that are composed of two parts, like a long-sleeved smock under a sleeveless surcoat. Mm-hmm. So they suggest Gowan and Lancelot wear their surcoats and they will eat dinner in their smocks. Oh my gosh. So like they, they, they're literally like splitting up one outfit among two people to make this work. I would love to know what the contemporary reaction to this would have been. Yeah. Like I've got to assume that the people reading this are high class. They're like, oh my God, imagine how humiliating it would be to not be able to, to help someone dress for dinner. Or like, is it a comedy of absurdity? Like, how would it go? Maybe this is a like, imagine if we were like the pools. Oh. Like, who knows? Oh, gosh. Uh, again, these these might be the only outfits these women have. Oh. Gowan and Lancelot accept, and there's like a surge of good feeling all around with the sorting out of a potentially embarrassing faux pas. <laughs> there is, however, also some bad news. You know how that knight who came to tell Gowan about Lancelot's predicament isn't here at dinner? Uh-huh. It's because he's dead. Yeah, that's because he died. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. There's a lot of red shirts. Uh, don't worry, though. A local hermit gave him last rites. Oh, yeah. And he's in a coffin in the chapel, just passing through. His last request was that Gowan and Lancelot be present uh, at his burial because he liked the idea of having such big names at his funeral. Lancelot says the knight seemed like a good guy and he wishes he'd caught his name. The other knight had just kind of ridden up and helped Lancelot and gotten stabbed and then run away. So, like, he didn't get a chance to introduce himself. The only good person in this story. I mean, I, I like the poor knight and his sisters. Oh, yeah, them too. The poor knight informs Lancelot, quote, He said, sire, that it would be known to you yet. Which is as cryptic as one might expect in these stories. In the morning, Lancelot and Gawain help the poor knight with the burial and then head off. On the way out, they catch each other up. And this is our last script for this chapter. So Lancelot says... You know, everyone at Arthur's court thinks you're dead or something. I love the Captain Kirk going on. Thank you. <laughs> I felt that a little Shatner was appropriate. Indeed. I'm planning to head back there, so we'll fix that. I think I'm done with heroing for a bit after what happened at the court of the Fisher King. Oh, you've been. Yeah, but I forgot to ask the question. Gowan, you idiot. <laughs> Yay. Listen. 
the finest knight in the whole goddamn world made the exact same mistake, so don't at me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and after writing for a short while more, the two part ways, and this time, the narration follows Lancelot. And that's the end of the very long Branch 6. So we are falling further behind because we've now been recording for almost two hours. And so it's definitely time to stop. Luckily, some of the upcoming branches are shorter. So we'll, we, let's see if we can fall less behind soon. Yes. However, since we don't have our segments this week, I do have correspondence. Hawk, a messenger. So... This is from one of our regular listeners, Patrick. And Patrick notes that, quote, apparently cinnamon refers to the barks of a fair number of related trees. The most common species in modern kitchens are cinnamum verum and C or cinnamum cassia. I suspect that the true cinnamon from the recipe is a translation of the same concept that inspired the C. verum species name. Also, I believe that Winnie the Pooh is a piece of media where woods and forest is correctly used with that distinction. The hundred acre woods were a place that people and animals frequented and lived in that happened to have trees. And then he also notes that you mentioned cannel as referring to a potential false cinnamon, and that is the modern French word for cinnamon, which I don't think either one of us knew because we no. are not literate in French whatsoever. No, French French is hard. French, French is, is, is confusing. Hard. I do not French. <laughs> So thank you, Patrick, because this was news to me. And for those who are uninitiated to Latin, verum comes from the word for truth, the Latin word for truth. So it's quite literally true cinnamon. Yeah. So there you go. We would also like to thank our regular listener, Kelly, for posting helpfully in the group that she has rue growing in her yard. So if we want to try some in future food adventures, she may be able to help us with that. Yeah. And she's also a part of the SCA, and she's growing a little medieval garden, which is very cool, and we wish her the best in that endeavor. And I would love, personally, to hear how it goes, because I have a mostly terrible green thumb, but I like to pretend, and I like to cook, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Sam has sent us a follow-up with a little bit of their history. And Sam, we were just talking about how we don't know what your pronouns are, so please let us know what your preferred pronouns are so we can uh, address you accurately. Yeah, sorry, Sam's one of those names that can uh, go each way, and we just realized while trying to pull this up that we had, we had each assumed different pronouns, yeah. so... <laughs> please let us know. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Dear Zoe and Mac, my apologies for the late reply. It was exam season in my neck of the woods, so researching wands has to be put on the back burner for a sec. Firstly, thank you for asking my permission for a shout out. I'd love that. So hey, here you are. Additionally, I've taken a look at some of the sources I've got, but most of the broader encyclopedic works on medieval magic don't mention wands much. Most of the mentions they do make are literary rather than archaeological, so they don't tell much about actual magic practices in the period. However, I found a passage in the Rutledge History of Medieval Magic, pages 395 through 396, which mentions graves in the British islands in Scandinavia where people were buried with wands and incantations. Quote, I chant a victory charm. I hold a victory staff. Victory by means of words and victory by means of an object. Unquote. It looks like the presence of the wand was very important in the associated ritual because it is mentioned specifically in the incantation. It also appears to be a form of folk magic rather than a formal learned magic, e.g. Solomonic magic, uh, which it comes from two 
two traditions would be how I would read mm-hmm. that because uh, Solomonic magic would still have full roots. But by the time you get to the Book of Honorius and things like that, it is very much a learned sort of magic. Well, I mean, everything has folk roots if you go back far uh, enough. Yeah, that's true. All right. Anyway, I feel like I should disclaim that most of my knowledge I have in the realm of magical technology comes from antiquity, cursed tablets, oracle tablets, scrying devices, etc. I know that by the end of antiquity, the wand or some form of rod had become visual shorthand for a magician in the Mediterranean, so the idea of it seems rather widespread. What I'm most curious about is its connection to Abrahamic religions. Moses, Aaron, and Jesus were all depicted with stabs or wands in ancient art, and these stabs play a major role in producing miracles. I'm curious to see how the wand fell out of fashion as a symbol of connection to the divine, in parentheses, or supernatural in the medieval period before it got reincorporated into a Christian tradition through Solomonic ideology. In most of the literary references I've encountered, wands are used for a variety of purposes, which could imply its role was very general or universal, like we see it today, but I haven't been able to find much on its use in extant magic practices. Having said that, I'm no expert on the subject. I hope some of the stuff in this email has piqued your interest or given you some new ideas. Looking forward to hearing about more medieval shenanigans on the pod. Lots of love from the Netherlands. Warm regards, Sam. P.S. The archaeological wands in the Rutledge range from 11th to 15th century, so it's a fairly broad period of time, and the beginning predates the Book of Honorius. So there we go. I am not surprised that there is sort of a lack of knowledge about this, given the prevalence that Christianity had, especially after antiquity. And so you sort of wanted to see, you know, all paganistic influences squashed. So that makes sense to me. And and we do still see staffs used. Staff of Aaron is a very, very, or sorry, Staff of Moses is a very, very good example because that like literally turns into a snake. And it, it is the instrument by which the plagues are summoned and so on and so forth. And what's interesting mm-hmm. about that to me in particular is what is the line between a symbolic object and something that actually has power in of itself? Because I think a lot of biblical scholars would argue that the staff was the instrument by which Moses could call upon God, but it was God doing the actual work. So how much agency did Moses have over that? What was that relationship like? I think that's an interesting question. From my recollection of the Bible, like that becomes a big deal later in Moses's personal story when he like hits some hits a rock with his staff and water comes out and he's like, look at my magic. And, and God's like, no, nah. <laughs> because <laughs> God's like, no, you don't have magic. You're holding a stick. You're a, you're a monkey holding a stick. And I did it. This does bring up the question, however, um, Pharaoh's priests also had magic staves, mm-hmm. staves, staffs. Who was making them work? Maybe their staves were really magic and Moses's was just a stick. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that, the that other talks question. talks to God. Yeah, that's the other question because they did do forms of magic, but it wasn't as powerful as God's magic. That was the contention there. And so I think a lot of the time, it sort of comes back to one of the ideas that we talked about, I think just recently in our podcast with Zedek is that like, yeah, the other gods exist, whether they're demons or spirits or other gods, but they're not as powerful as the one God. So I think we in our modern world, especially in Christianity are like, yeah, it's just God. That's it. That's the only spiritual force in the world. And it's like, no, not even in biblical canon. Is that true? And we forget that. Yeah, I definitely feel like, at at least in the Old Testament, you can still see echoes of like a polytheistic predecessor Mm -hmm. to the text. Oh, 100%. Where it's not like, like, this is the the one God, the only God. It's like, no, there there are a bunch. It's just that ours is the best. Yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. And I mean, I think we even see that in the New Testament where like demons who are, or spirits who are possessing other figures 
Oh, like what's his name? Uh, Simon Magus. Magus. Yeah, Magus. Well, I can't say anything that, today. There's also, I think, there was a slave girl who was possessed who would call out fortunes. And when Jesus showed up in town, she kept following him around and proclaiming who he was, which he didn't want people to know because that wasn't what his mo was at the time god imagine how annoying that would be <laughs> if someone was just following you around going look look who it is guys guys it's jeff jeff's right there <laughs> jeff has come he wants to sell you vacuum cleaners would you like to buy a vacuum cleaner <laughs> from jeff 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 but here's the thing here's the thing uh, her owner was like dude can you can you cut this out like this is this is a big loss of profit for me because she would tell fortunes i do like the idea of someone going like no you're on shift yeah. <laughs> go back to prophesying for profit yeah but jesus cast the spirit out of her and then i think the guy got upset because he's like bro you just killed my side hustle to be fair if your side hustle is based on owning people you shouldn't have it to 100 agreed but that is i mean in the new testament and the old testament we, we see the presence of other supernatural beings in both and i think a lot of the time we also forget that angels are supernatural beings like bruh <laughs> Although I guess they're explicitly not gods, they're just messengers. Yeah, but even then there's tiers of, of power for each one of them. So anyway. I've been informed by a reliable radio source that we are not allowed to know about the hierarchy of angels. <laughs> that seems very reasonable. Carry on, please. Back, back, get us back on track. Now the weather. But yeah, so I, I think that I'm not surprised by the lack of knowledge and the lack of research in this area, because quite frankly, there's probably not that much evidence for it. But I do think... There is a distinction between the use of pagan staffs and the use of Christian staffs, and I think that's very interesting. But anyway, point being, my interest has definitely been piqued, so I will be digging into this, and hopefully we'll be able to do like a full episode, or at least part of an episode, on magic staffs and how how they worked. And um, keep us updated on what you find. Other listeners, if you have information to share with Sam about this, please let us know. We'll pass it along. Sam, if you'd like us to stop reading your emails aloud on the podcast, <laughs> let us know and we'll stop. Absolutely. <laughs> let us know. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And if, if you have your own, you know, project, whether or not it's like, we don't particularly care what level of research you're doing. Like if you have a vague interest and you want to know more about something, send us what you're working on. Or if you're, you know, a PhD and you're like, I can't find this one article, then you never know. Like we, we're trying to foster a community of scholars and geeks and nerds and everybody around us to trade that sort of information. So if you have it or if you have an interest or whatever, let us know. That's what we're here for. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to help get people in touch with each other to to share information and resources and to share the information and resources that we have. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, email us. Tweet at us. Instagram message, whatever. Join our Facebook group and just like directly post stuff yeah. asking for. Absolutely. And I want to be clear, this is this is not relegated to academic stuff. Like if you also have like a nerdy question, like, hey, I'm looking for a new system. I'm looking for something that's sort of inspired by X, Y, or Z, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Or like, hey, where does the ideology of the Raven Queen come from? Like, sure, let's look into that. Let's figure out what those origins are. Because a lot of the classic deans the ideas come from pantheons or they're just wholesale pantheons that they just grabbed. Uh, I know the old deities and demigods book is like 90% like just real world pantheons that have been D&Dified. Oh yeah. But I, th I think we've mentioned before on the podcast that uh, in D&D &D third edition, the major lawful neutral god is just Saint Cuthbert, like the Catholic Saint Cuthbert. That's so great. It's like like slightly D&Dified, but like his, he's literally called Saint Cuthbert. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, that, that about closes it up for us. <laughs> yeah, send us your stuff. What are you working on? We'd love to know. 
Yeah, and hey, maybe maybe if we're really taken by it, like we'll do a bunch of research and do an episode, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you'll have ex- extra information. Yeah. Feel free to take whatever information we give you. Just cite us. <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Understand. And the little old lady squeezing the bread is a metaphor for... I, I thought I was going to be able to pull, like, a name out of my head, but then I didn't. The lady squeezing the bread? Yeah, to check if it's fresh. I mean, I feel like that's a sexual metaphor, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> Buns! Right, she's, she's a metaphor for, I don't know, a sexually active old age. There you go.